welcome to The Last Thing I Saw. I'm your host, Nicholas Rapold. At some point last year, I learned that Carolyn Gollum, a critic whom I read on Screen Slate, was planning to make a movie about a medieval mystic. For this episode, Carolyn joins us to talk about movies set in olden times and how they envision the past. Two recent titles came to mind. The Last Duel, which is based on a true story from medieval France, and The Green Knight, which is inspired by a 14th century chivalric romance. Our conversation led to storytelling set in other time periods as well, including the nautical fiction of Master and Commander, and Guillermo del Toro's recent remake of Nightmare Alley. Stay tuned to the end when Carolyn shares selections from her budget Middle Ages viewing list. Hello. Good morning. Um, should I say that it's morning, or do they do they not need to know that? I think that's actually it's an interesting it's an interesting timestamp to have. I'm having my coffee. I've got my Zabar's mug here. It's good. It's good. I've got the light pouring in through the window. It's casting a, a heavenly beatific glow around my head to set the scene for you. That's quite lovely. I no, I think it's a good idea because otherwise it occurs in this kind of timeless podcast time. It's that liminal space that we all seem to occupy whenever we listen to podcasts. Yeah, yeah, which is usually more kind of cushioned probably than my audio is. I haven't really like prettied up the audio for this because I've always felt most podcasts that it feels like someone's like breathing in your ear. See, you have an opportunity to get real live with this Foley too. I had hoped that when podcasts had come back in a big way that people were going to do it like, you know, the Jello program with Jack Benny and and uh, the Aldridge family with chirping birds. And, yeah. you know, you could do like a garbage truck sound. I know I had to put my garbage out last night. My office is at street level, so you can you can hear the bustle. I did use, I don't know, this. these are kind of deep cuts by now, but last year in the in the deepest, darkest winter, I was using the sound of a subway pulling in as the transition sound. Oh, the sound that everybody didn't realize they missed until they didn't hear it anymore. Yes, exactly. So, but I agree. The garbage truck would be a good one. There's one that sounds like a tweeting of a bird uh, around here. Um, but I, you know, I realized I didn't really give a proper introduction. You want to talk a bit about what what you're up to these days? Sure. Yeah. Um, as I tell everybody who asks for my forty word bio, I'm a filmmaker first and foremost, though not as prodigious of a filmmaker as I am a film writer or film programmer. Um, and it's because one of those practices is considerably more expensive than the other two. It is true. Uh, but yeah, that's what I'm up to right now. I've been working on a feature film set in the 14th century for the last four years, and I've made some considerable headway on the development side of it. What else? Just working working for the man, <laughs> drinking coffee out of his A-bar's mug, and trying to ease into my early mid-30s with dignity. Well, that, that is a sound goal for, for all of us as, as we um, creep closer to the grave. <laughs> Jesus Christ. Oh, sorry. Was that too? <laughs> no, that's okay. It's Christmas. It's Christmas. Yeah. I actually, had, at first I had not put like two and two together about what you were watching and what you're making. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, this is a question I realize I'm always asking people making films is like, do you watch things as part of preparing the film or do you like to kind of go in cold? about the particular subject or time period or anything? No, actually, um, I've been watching, I mean, this has been a years-long project making this film that is set in the 14th century, so I've been watching a lot of medieval films. Mm. And the style that I am employing with the film is, um, you know, very Jarman-esque, deliberately, because he's a saint, and I revere him. 
So in addition to revisiting the works of one of my favorite British filmmakers, I've been watching medieval movies from every decade and, you know, as many countries are making them. Um, I just rewatched The Adventures of Robin Hood, the Michael Cortez from 1939. Oh, that's a, that's a lark, isn't it? What a masterpiece. What a gay romp. I love the fabrics. I, I watch a lot of um, old, like very, very old, you know, I would say like pre-war medieval films and also European low budget medieval films because it's a really fun genre to do at the micro budget level. And as mm-hmm. exciting as my to be announced development news is, it's not as exciting as, as, you know, a check for a million dollars or whatever. Mm-hmm. So I still have to figure out how to do it on the cheap. And what I'm watching for across multiple films, you know, for multiple eras is tropes that people utilize for good or for ill some historically accurate, some not. And we're going to get into that in a minute too. Mm, Um, But also little techniques that people employ. So a big one is like, if you have an exterior scene, get a wagon wheel and lean it against a building. And nothing will telegraph that this is a, you know, (laughs) pre-printing press era, quite like a big ass wagon wheel. And they used wagons until 150 years ago. Doesn't matter. Wagon wheel, barrel, tolling bells, you know, that kind of thing. Um, the people that, that that do it really well, obviously, are people that employ, you know, close-ups or very smart coverage so that they don't have to show the grandeur of the space that they're working within. So, you know, Trial of Joan of Arc being a, a really premium example. Any version of Joan of Arc actually is a really premium example. Uh, what else did I rewatch? I watched Barochik's Blanche maybe once every couple of months just because I love it so much, but also because it's a very splendid film. Let's see. When Nighthood Was in Flower, the silent film. A lot of old Hollywood stuff too, because of the set building. I'm trying to figure out how to do the set building on like a smaller scale mm. or how to take existing Gothic inspired structures and add enough artifice to them that it, it kind of decouples the audience from the location. Mm-hmm. So there's that. Um, we had two medieval movies come out this year and I saw both of them. And, yes. and so I went to go see them for two reasons. One, because I'm an absolute pervert who loves the 14th century it's a very perverse time, but it's a very compelling time as well. Uh, and also because I wanted to see how other people were doing it. And I haven't seen Benedetta yet. I'm saving that for my Christmas Day movie, like all good Jewish girls are. <laughs> I have to see I have to see the lesbian nun movie on Christmas Day and then go eat Chinese food. It, as the elders foretold, I'm compelled to do it. It's, it's the traditional way to celebrate. Um, you know, you know what I'm talking about, Nick. So I, I haven't seen Benedetta yet. It's 17th century, not medieval, but whatever. Right. Yeah, that's the thing. It is. It is. But it's nuns. Everyone thinks my movie's about nuns. It's not. It's about a holy woman, but she's not a nun. But I'm still going to see a lesbian nun movie directed by Paul Verhoeven. What am I, an idiot? No, I mean, life, you know, life's too short to miss that. Yeah. I mean, but I saw, I saw both of the medieval movies that came out this year. The Green Knight, the... David Lowry movie. Well, what do you want to talk about first, that one or the other medieval movie? You mean The Last Duel, my favorite movie of the year? Yes. We can talk about both. I think that both of them do. uh, Well, so the Middle Ages right now uh, is undergoing a bit of like, a. don't want to call it a renaissance because that's such a horrible way to describe (laughs) it. Um, And I have some problems with the term renaissance anyway. Uh, This is the part where because I know a and love a medievalist very dearly. I have to put the caveat in here that I'm not a historian. I'm just a total loser who loves the Middle Ages and wants to make a movie set in the Middle Ages. Well, I think also that 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 should be that should be overturned the the notion that anyone might have that loving the Middle Middle Ages or having some unhealthy obsession with it is in fact absolutely healthy, especially since we're clearly cruising towards another Middle Ages. 
So funny you should say that. I have a, the first mistake when talking about the Middle Ages is to use medieval or, or Middle Ages as a shorthand for something that is implicitly backwards or barbaric. A lot of scholars are revisiting the era because the Middle Ages historically, like when we talk about the historiography of the Middle Ages, how people have discussed it and talked about it, the Middle Ages are just sort of changed to suit people's attitudes about the prevailing time. You know, mm-hmm. and they and they kind of warp it according to what they want it to be. And there are a lot of different scholars who are doing great work in this field. And the medieval era came back under scrutiny in the last two years, obviously, because we are still in the middle of a global pandemic. And so in the months immediately following the first wave of COVID here in America, at least, there was a renewed interest in writings about the bubonic plague and the political climate that came out from the bubonic plague. Uh, There was a renewed interest in Julian of Norwich about whom I'm making my film. She was a a medieval anchorite who self-isolated before it was cool. She became became a hermit after having three days of intensely psychedelic deathbed visions and then spent the rest of her life writing about those visions and their their theological import. And she wrote it in English and she's the first woman to write a book in English. Part of the, the scholarship that's emerging and kind of helping us to reassess the medieval era is looking at that time and saying, hey, people weren't just a bunch of unwashed peasants covered in shit. They were whole people like you and me. So I thought it was interesting that we had two movies that came out mm-hmm. this year. Um, I don't think that The Green Knight is set in the 14th century, but they both are set in the Middle Ages or in a 21st century depiction of the Middle Ages, I should say. Yeah, And they both are reassessing aspects of the medieval era to varying degrees of success. And we can talk about it too, because since you seem to think that the Middle Ages are on their way back, now is as good a time as ever to look at like what about the Middle Ages are people trying to point to in these films? Yeah, let's start talking about a, a movie, The Last Duel, why not? Sure. Um, since that one, I think, is is a movie that makes a pretty traditional and I felt successful effort at fleshing out the world that it imagines. Um, I mean, I'm sure there are um, inaccuracies and shortfalls in it. I, I mean, it's a movie that, that struck me by its brutality. What did you make of The Last Duel? So I went into this movie, and I, and I say this, you know, with abundant affection. I'm somewhat, like, ambivalent toward Ridley Scott as a director. I've always been team Tony. It's not a contest, but you know, on any given day, I feel like watching a Tony Scott movie, but I very seldom am like, you know what I could really go for? But I watched Thelma and Louise for the first time ever this year. I'd never seen it. And I didn't realize it was a Ridley Scott joint until afterwards. Um, And I watched Aliens too, which I'd seen before and I really enjoyed it, but I'm not like all in the tank for Ridley Scott, right? I haven't seen Gladiator. And in fact, I tried to watch it while I was in Puerto Rico a couple weeks ago and I just, I couldn't stick with it. I put on Ghost instead. It's a really dense movie. So The Last Duel, I went to see it with a, a friend of mine who works at a, at a theater. And, um, you know, she'd asked me to go with her. And I said, yeah, sure, I'll go. I'll go to this movie. And in fact, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take a minute to shout her out. My, my dear beloved friend, Christina Cacioppo, who works at Nighthawk, asked me if I would be her date to go see The Last Duel at the Nighthawk in Prospect Park. And I said, sure. I wasn't really planning to see this movie, but it's set in the Middle Ages. And I thought, what the heck? I'm not a big Matt Damon fan. I'm not a big Ben Affleck fan. Like... Nothing about this movie, other than the fact that it was set in the 14th century, had a lot of draw for me. Mm-hmm. But I went to go see it anyway. And maybe this is, you know, this is like a nota bene here. Maybe it was because I took an edible. I don't know. But I sat down and watched this movie. <laughs> and the lights went down. And the, the masking on the screen expanded to CinemaScope. My edible kicked in, like, right at that moment. And I thought, oh, fuck. Like, here we go. I'm going to dig this movie. And let me tell you something. From the minute it opened, I was wrapped 
Because if you haven't seen the film, I'm not spoiling anything. It opens with the titular duel. Yeah. And at the moment, right before Jean de Carouge, played by Matt Damon, and Jacques Legri, played by towering himbo Adam Driver, right before they they strike their first blows in the arena, it cuts to the credits and we flash back to the events that preceded it. Classic structure. And I knew I was in for classic Hollywood filmmaking in the best way. And that's exactly what I got. And as soon as I got out of that movie, I thought, oh my God, I'm going to tell everybody I know to go see this because it was a dud at the box office. Yeah. And I told, I told my family to go see it. My dad loved it. My mom loved it. My sister loved it. I took a friend to see, I saw it again at Kipps Bay with a with a buddy of mine and he loved it too oh, they had a big screen there they did but they didn't do it in scope but it was still good no. like mm-hmm. I'll, it's an infinitely watchable film and part of what makes it so watchable is the structure obviously it's in three parts i think somebody with a bad take on twitter called it the rashomon of rape which is hilarious because rashomon is the rashomon of rape but it has that rashomon structure of you know every point of view from the film being shown and because it's a it's a trial you know the duel was a trial like the the history behind it is is it really happened. These are all real people. And rather than go to trial in a court, which they had courts back then, by the way, uh, but rather than go to trial in court, which, you know, Matt Damon's character, Jean de Carouge, knows he can't do because he's an illiterate fail son. um, He decides to go to court or take his, his opponent to trial in a, in a realm where he knows he can dominate. And that's in the realm of combat. Mm -hmm. So the film has a lot to say about, you know, who has the upper hand in which strata of society the film has a lot to say about the importance, obviously, of believing women when they tell you they've been assaulted. It has a lot to say about how our society treats the victims of that assault. And, and again, a lot to say about class and about who does the fighting and who does the bookkeeping back at the kingdom and about favoritism and about the changing, I think, overall, the changing value of men and what they offer us. And so when I had said earlier and we were talking about, you know, yeah. what we were going to talk about on this episode, the men's picture and like what men's functions are. You know, I think I think about this a lot because some of my best friends are men. I'm crazy about them. And I feel for them because the traditional avenues toward self-actualization or f- stability are, are pretty much non-existent for y'all right now. You know, there used to be a time when you could be, a, you know, a jobber moving from place to place, working with your hands, sleeping in a, a rooming house, paying for sex, and then, you know, dying an easy death at the age of 50. And that's just not an option for, for fellows anymore. Now it's like, wh- what do we expect men to do? You know, we expect them to, to be the very traditional male things that, that they are raised to be, which is to say providers and protectors of usually white virginity. Uh, but the thing is that, like, we don't offer them any opportunity to do that. So now they're like dogs running around that don't have a purpose. Ultimately, I think that's the last duel touches on that very nicely. The Green Knight does too. I mean, I had some issues with the the way that the Green Knight was actually executed as a film product, but the story itself is about what happens when you, uh, as a man, are unable to live up to the expectation that society expects of you. Jean de Carouge is expected to, you know, marry a woman who has land, and mm-hmm. you know that land doesn't come as part of the dowry, and that's kind of the inciting incident in the film. He's right. expected to have an heir. She doesn't conceive for five years of their marriage. That's a problem. Um, he's expected to be a provider, but he has to keep going back to work as a knight for hire to fight on behalf of these little duchies and kingdoms abroad because he can't afford to maintain his household in the in the fashion that he's accustomed to. So his failures are are multitude in the last duel. He just keeps fucking up and fucking up and fucking up because he's a fuck up. 
I mean, he's not he's not a, a chivalric ideal of manhood. He's not Lancelot of the Lake. He's not a poet. He doesn't know how to like pay homage to this woman. He can't fucking read, but he yeah. has one thing that he can do really well, and that's hurt people. So that that's how he makes his living, and that's how he ends up avenging his wife's honor and, and attaining a certain level of success and stability. He finds a way to like make the duel, which at that point when the movie takes place was already out of date. And they say it in the film. They say like we don't really do the martial duel anymore. Right. You know, it's bar, it's medieval, it's barbaric. We're beyond that. This is the 14th century. But he finds his ability to command power and respect and provide for his wife and and avenge her by going backward and saying, no, you know, I can I can hold my own in this very traditional and somewhat outmoded plane of masculinity, and that's how I'm going to do it. Yeah. Well, there's there, there's a sense I got from from the movie that he's also just purely sort of outmaneuvered by Adam Driver's character, um, and there's a kind of resentment that you know Driver is this. Uh, I mean, I can't call him call him dashing. I mean, he is dashing though, and and I think the film deliberately sets him up at least in the beginning to make him very attractive. I mean, he's the most attractive actor working right now. Women love him, and I don't think that it's like a an accident that they that they cast him as the rapist. You know. Well, um, do do you find him a character that from from the outset you're kind of suspicious of him anyway? Um, I'm inherently suspicious of all attractive men because I was raised to be, um, and so are the women in the film too, and not without good reason. I mean, the guy's a bounder; it's pretty nakedly obvious from the beginning. Yeah, that's what I mean. Yeah, that I mean, that he he seems you know yeah right a bounder or a scoundrel. He can be both dashing and a bounder. They often yeah. are one and the same. But it's interesting that the movie ends up giving an equal, I don't. I mean, I didn't have a stopwatch, but in its three tellings, it gives an equal amount of time to um, Adam Driver's view of the story. Oh, of course. And, and I think the reason for that is, is deliberate. It's, you know, first of all, we're not getting the whole story if we don't see every point of view, right? It's, it's abundantly clear from the outset, even within his point of view, that Marguerite de Carouge has been raped. But what separates his point of view from her point of view, besides the obvious, um, is that he is approaching sexual relations from a, a place of like, well, she's protesting just enough, right? There's that scene earlier in the film where he's at you know, some kind of orgy at the Count's castle, um, and he's chasing this woman around the table, and he says, you know, if you run, I would only chase you. Like the idea right. being that if you're a lady, you can fuck around, but you have to put up just enough of a fight so that people know that you tried to keep your honor. So for someone like Jacques Legree, who is a bounder, a womanizer, and is accustomed to getting what he wants, you know, I think his version of the of the rape as it transpires is just about that. It's about the necessary propriety. And the big tell is when she takes off her shoes, right? She runs up mm-hmm. the stairs and she slips out of these heavy wooden shoes um, and in his telling of it, she stops and makes sure that he sees that she can take them off. They get yeah. up to the bedroom and she she calls out for her maid, but it's in this kind of playful way of like making sure that all the bases are covered. And then he fucks her and it's kind of like a letdown. And what I think is interesting, too, is that in his point of view, Marguerite de Carouge's rape accusation is not because he raped her, but because he like was bad in bed and like, you know, didn't stick around to cuddle. So when you see her telling of it, which is the truth, and the movie actually lists it as the truth, and and smartly, I should add, it's not about, oh, this guy fucked me and I had a bad time and I feel feel bad and I don't want to get in trouble, so I'm going to accuse him of rape. And all the arguments that people make 
against believing victims of sexual assault. Um, her argument is the truth, which is, no, I was raped by this guy. He may not think that he was doing it because of the customs of the era, um, but I know what happened to me and I didn't want this to happen. You know, she didn't entice him. And in fact, the the source material that the film is based on, The Last Duel by Eric Jaeger, draws very heavily from Frozar's chronicles. Jean Frozar was a historian of 14th century France who was alive at the time. He wasn't at the last duel, but his chronicles includes, you know, a lot of accounts from people who actually were there. Oh, I have that book. You have Frozar's chronicles? I do. Yeah. One of those old penguin. Yeah, you should check it out. I mean, the duel is in there. It's accounts from people who were at that duel. It was a huge deal. Go back and revisit Jean Frozar. He's great. Just to think about the filmmaking involved in this, it's it's curious that that the movie sticks with giving all three perspectives, you know, especially where one of them is this, that of the villain. I mean, this is a hard movie to watch. Just a, a one-line description of it. I mean, it's not like... It's a, an almost impossible film to market, too. And it's I think been, that's what I'm getting at. Yeah, yeah. it's been interesting to see not how... not a knock against it. No, I think the film has a tremendous amount of truth in it about how we deal with sexual assault. And the, the truly damning thing, and what I find interesting about it, both as a, as a work of film and also as a historical film, specifically, mm-hmm. um, is that you could make this film today. You could very easily make a movie where a woman accuses a man of rape, goes on trial, her testimony is questioned, people tell her to drop the suit, and she doesn't. In the 14th century, in the 21st century, it's the same fucking thing. That's that's the film's strength. That and its its technique. Ridley Scott is a, a classical Hollywood filmmaker in the in the greatest sense. The narrative structure of the film is is incredible. I don't like that it does that thing that all movies do now where everything's blue. But other than that, you know, yeah. I thought it was a, an incredibly well-made work of film art. And it told a great story. And that's why I went to go see it twice. And that's why I'm telling every fucking person I know to see this film. Yeah. Well, I, it's, I mean, this is the least of it, but I, I do think it's superior to his other film this, this fall as well, House of Gucci. Which I didn't see. I'm saving it for an airplane if I ever get on an airplane again. Right. Well, yeah, I mean, I, I definitely agree about the strength of the film. And I, I, just one thing we, we haven't covered maybe is, is the, the ending. Because, you know, you began by talking about the classical framing device it starts with, and it closes the frame, and that it brings you back to that duel, to this deciding duel, which is, I mean, first of all, you know, you were talking about film art, is just an incredibly staged piece of oh, action. Incredible action filmmaking, and the kind of action filmmaking that I think is is on the wane. I mean, one of the other yeah. films that I that I cited when we were talking about what to talk about was Master and Commander, which is a film that I slept on when it came out because it was the year 2000 and I was a cinephile by that point and had no time for quote unquote bad action movies. Right. For the first of what could be 60 film adaptations of a series, book series. Well, you know, what's wild to me is I slept on this movie, but everybody loves it. It's, you know, a a canonical entry into um, the dad cinema library. Um, my dad loves that movie. I called him after I watched it. And um, it's a film I think that's aged really well because it's come to represent something that is now lost, which is good old fashioned action filmmaking that isn't yeah. a bunch of people in body stockings saying soy dialogue in front of a green screen. Like, yeah. I know that they that they did a lot of green screen work in The Last Duel, but they still had to fuck, they still had to get real ass horses in there and like put them in real suits of armor. They're not wearing like, you know, some weird costume from a comic book they're wearing like real armor and they have to like learn how to fight each other there's yeah. stage combat and there's so many little details in this film that like 
you just can't get if you make movies, you know, exclusively, um, you know, in a computer. There's a scene where Marguerite de Carouge is at an open air market and she's shopping for fabric and she espies Jacques Legree across the town square. And for a hot second right behind her, you see a guy juggling knives like Renfair style. Right. Ridley Scott got, you know, in true C.B. DeMille fashion, he got a cast of thousands. He got a knife juggling guy. That guy got into wardrobe. He juggled those knives. He's on camera for a second. It's so richly done. It's so thoroughly fleshed out. Flesh being the optimum word here. There's real people and real things happening in this movie. Yeah. And I've also noticed because I talk about this movie online so much, I get served ads for this film as if I need further inducement to watch my favorite movie of the year. <laughs> and and I get these ads for this movie. And now the marketing around it, because it's on streaming, has shifted from, fellas, it's a movie with your guys in it and there's nights to like, ladies... <laughs> This is a movie about a woman who dared to speak the truth. Like they, tr they're kind of retroactively trying to address all of these bad faith Rashomon of rape arguments by pointing to it as like a medieval Me Too movie. And I think that's very shrewd. I think they should have been doing it forever ago, you know. But it's just not. The, it's a film that everybody should absolutely go and see, and it's a perfect film for right now. But it's also the worst film for right now because it's set in the 14th century. It's about people you've never fucking heard of in France, no less. And it has uh, not one, but two prolonged rape scenes in it that are incredibly hard to watch. I will say also to Ridley Scott's credit, in an interview, Jodie Comer, who plays Marguerite de Carouge, talks about when they filmed that scene. And they were done with it by lunchtime. He did it with a five camera setup so that they didn't have to shoot it over and over and over and over again. They filmed it with five cameras so that they got all the coverage they needed. And that was it. And then they just didn't have to deal with it. I thought that was yeah. so cool of him. I, I think you're absolutely right that and ended up never getting its due about it, you know, everything you've been talking about. Well, and you know what else kind of put me off about this movie? Like I said earlier, I'm not a big Ben Affleck fan or a Matt Damon fan, and I haven't seen any of their other collaborations, but they yeah. wrote the script with Nicole Hull of Center. Yeah. And the way that the script was written, as far as I understand, is that they each kind of took a part. You know, Matt Damon wrote the Matt Damon's character part. Ben Affleck wrote the Adam Driver's character part that also features some of his hammiest scenes. And I'm going to I'm gonna go on the record right now and say, Oscar for Ben Affleck for this movie. I think, I think because, he's terrific in it. It's he's weird. so good. He nailed it. He's so yeah. campy. He's so bratty. I loved him so much. I can't believe I'm saying this about Ben fucking Affleck, but I loved him in this picture. No, it's, I mean, it's, it's such it's, a great performance. It's almost as if whatever comfort zone he's in doing roles, he finally got out of it here to, to actually play a character. I'm just going to be a douchebag in a funny hat and he nails it. He even gets like the vaguely kind of like, I mean, this is ridiculous to say, but like Euro trash aspect to it. The blonde, know? the blonde hair with the bangs is really, really drills. Does heavy lifting drills it. Yeah, it does a lot of work. <laughs> like the bad hair in this movie is so good too. I mean, I, I, I have to admit, like I, like I said, when I, when I sat down to watch this movie in a theater, the way God intended, I, I was expecting to just laugh my ass off the whole time. Not because of the edible. I just took it, you know because that's my resting state. Um, but because everyone's hair was so goofy, I just thought, oh my God, no way am I going to enjoy this movie. And I and I have a, admittedly a soft spot for this kind of crap. Like I love, you know, chivalric verse and movies about knights and shining armor and Arturian legend. And I, I love that crap so much, yeah. even though it's so hokey. But I was expecting to think this film was so ridiculous and it was not. It was so, so smart and so sincere. And yeah. perhaps that sincerity is is part of the reason why people have such a hard time with it too, right? Yeah. I don't think we're yeah. we're not accustomed to films that are are honest and 
and and very forthright and very straightforward and very much like everything that you need to know about this film is on the surface. Yeah. It's not about ironic detachment and self self knowing winking dialogue. You know, there's none of that stuff. There were and it, the film is sincere almost to the point of like folly too. The the scene where uh, they're, where they're at the banquet or the party and Adam Driver and and uh, Jody Comer are talking about reading yeah. they're talking about the how you know how she didn't like um you know this like icelandic epic and i just thought oh my god this is so funny like i can see what they're trying to do and they're trying to be sincere in it but it is a little bit preposterous could i, I there's just one more thing i wanted to add about the last duel if i could because i wanted to know what you thought of the ending in terms of how it how it felt to you because the ending in some ways was my favorite part of the movie because do you mean the epilogues or the the the, um, the epilogue is fascinating, but I just mean in how this is at the time is somehow resolved by combat. I don't know how much it really even does um, for Jodie Comer's character. The notion that someone is just slaughtered on, on a battle, not even a battlefield. It's on a on display in like a stadium, the equivalent of a stadium. I mean, what, what did you make it's of it? It's a Pyrrhic victory. It's a bit of a Pyrrhic victory. I think, you know, she... Yeah, I mean the big the big tell for me, like before the duel even happens, and I don't think anybody doubts for a second that Matt Damon will prevail and this woman will be spared being burned at the stake. But the scene before the duel, when she's holding her baby and talking to him, and she says, "Man, if I'd known, like he's my whole life, if I'd known that this was going to put us both at risk, I would have just let it ride." Like, you know, that scene and the scene with her mother in law are kind of the the two big tells for just like what what women have to navigate in order to seek anything resembling justice in this world, even now, you know, ultimately he wins because he's the better fighter. And maybe Matt Damon's character knew in his heart of hearts that he would win. You know, he makes it sound like, and and the way that they believe these duels would work back then is if you lost, it's because God was not in your favor. If you won, it's because you were right. And it is a might makes right kind of thing. But I mean, it's, we, we still live in that society now as I've, as I've established. I think the ending is really sweet. I think it's really funny that, that they, take pains to mention that she never married she undergoes mm-hmm. this horrible experience and she lives right uh she has her child her husband continues to provide for her they achieve a modicum of financial stability because of the success of this duel and then the best part is that you know she gets a somewhat happy ending i mean she's not punished for her hubris and she's also not even though in a weird way she's defined by this assault that happens to her the way the film sets it up, it, it it makes you feel as though, you know, she can move past this horrible experience. You know, it yeah. does come to define her life and her subsequent financial security, obviously, but she on an individual level is given the permission to move beyond it and to enjoy her life and, you know, with her child and never have to remarry after her husband dies on crusade. Yeah. It's almost in spite of everything that she is able to, to survive. I mean, obviously we could keep talking about the last duel. Let's talk. We should talk about the green knight. Yes. Let's go to the green knight. Two's a trend as they say. So it doesn't really behoove us to talk. My thesis completely falls apart. If we only talk about the movie I liked versus the movie I didn't like as much. Yes. What would you like to say about uh, the green knight, which again, from my perspective caused a kind of flurry of interest in the summer but then, you know, swiftly was lost to the sands of time, it seemed. I was more excited to see The Green Knight than I was The Last Duel. And I was more disappointed by The Green Knight than I was The Last Duel. Mostly for filmmaking reasons. I find Ridley Scott's style of filmmaking, again, because he's a classicist, to be that much more exciting. I thought The Green Knight was very oddly paced and a little gratuitous in parts. 
but I love the story, obviously. Like I said, I'm a total simp for Arturian legend and the story of Sir Garwin and the Green Knight is is one of the most bewitching and interesting chapters in the Arturian legends because it's got a lot of interesting things going for it that you wouldn't really expect from medieval literature. It's a homoerotic, like intentionally homoerotic. It's about Christmas. <laughs> it's a great Christmas story, but it's also about about being a fuck up. And, and, you know, we're so accustomed to these stories of knights being dashing and glories. bold and yeah, the glories of, of the knights of the round table, but there are just as many stories about knights that are huge fuck ups and we're supposed to learn from them as well. And in the case of Sir Garwin, you know, they didn't really, they didn't do like a, a beat for beat, perfect adaptation of the story of the green knight for this film. There were some things that were zhuzhed around like, yeah. Do you want it? Do you want to just give a quick, pre-see of what what the film's path is yeah so the the premise of the film where it differs mostly from the from the story is that sir garwin is not king arthur's nephew but for the purposes of this film they made him king arthur's nephew i think to create for us to, to create i think a shorthand between like you know one person and the master that he serves like the idea that a knight would be so devoted to another person that he's not related to i think is somewhat alien to us now when really all those stories are about total fealty to a master and and his wife, whether that's a king or another lord that you serve in the case of The Last Duel, you know, there's also a lot of that. Right. We didn't talk about that, that class stratification and that fealty so much, but the yeah. idea that you are devoted to somebody and will literally ride or die for them, even if they're not a blood relation, is, is very much a part of what it is to be a knight of the realm. Uh, in the case of the Green Knight, they made him the nephew because I think it behooves them to have this like micro dynasty in here that just shows you how much of a fuck up Dev Patel's character is. And he's portrayed in the film not as being like, you know, brave Lancelot or Sir Robin or Percival, but as, you know, this this like idiot, this fail son. I mean, he's like begrudgingly added to the round table. He sleeps in, he cavorts with prostitutes and common folk. Um, he comes from a good family, but he's very obviously kind of like, you know, misdirected in his energies in a way that... <laughs> that's a wonderful euphemism. Yeah, exactly. I mean, he, he, but you know, he's a fail son. Like that's the, I hate to use that term, but that is literally what he is. He's somebody who by all accounts should have every avenue to greatness open up before him because of his status as a member of a landed family. Mm -hmm. And he just isn't. And not only that, but he blows the test. I mean, the story of the Green Knight is, it, you know, it opens with a, you know, King Arthur being kind of like dotty and asking people to, um, to tell Christmas stories. And before anybody can get in with a great rousing Christmas story, a towering Green Knight appears and challenges someone in his in his realm to, to a duel. Literally, mm -hmm. he says, like, any blow that you visit upon me, I shall visit upon you one year hence. And it's a trick. Right. You right. could have just as easily because he's carrying holly and mistletoe like you, you could have just as easily gone to this to this mysterious green knight and given him a kiss. And then a year's hence, you will get a kiss in return. But because Garwin, Dev Patel as Garwin, is so eager to make his name and prove his medal among these other more accomplished older people, he he goes from zero to 60 and he cuts the guy's fucking head off and then realizes like, oh, my God, what have I just done in a year? I'm going to have my head cut off. And so his journey that he that he undergoes, you know, I, I thought structurally and I barely remember the movie because, like I said, I saw it once. I didn't like it that much. So it didn't stick with me as much. Um, but the, the journey that he undergoes through this magic land and the kind of people that he meets and these different mysteries, it could have been a lot more 
I don't know, like he, he kills so much time getting to that point in the journey. And if you want to know my biggest problem with the movie in a nutshell, they had a CGI Fox, you know, like there's this Fox oh, that yeah. is I, that this kind of like this kind of like, yeah, it's this like this avatar, this like symbol, this allegorical thing that's supposed to follow him around. And it's CGI. And it's like, there's Fox trainers in England. There are foxes eating out of garbage pails in London right fucking now. Like, just get somebody with a fox. <laughs> Give one of them a fiver and they'll Give, come right yeah, on the set. Slip, slip a tenant to your uh, fox, your fox wrangler. Or the, um, the best part of the Green Knight story, and I've read it and I've listened to audio versions of it and i've listened to a spectacular episode of bbc's in our time about it which i cannot recommend enough if you like this shit mm. as much as i do um but i've i've read the green knight story and my favorite part of the story is when in his travels he encounters the the duke and and the lady i guess it's another lord and lady and the lord says you know i'll make a deal with you anything that i take on the hunt you can have and you can have anything in my home as long as I can have something from you. Right. Another one of these tricky bargains. It's a tricky bargain. And Garwin tries to keep his purity to the best of his ability by resisting the overtures of this randy lady. And the Green Knight as a story that people would tell to one another is popular because it has this sexy stuff in the middle. And I wanted it to be actually sexy. You know, I wanted those stakes to be really high. Instead, you don't see Dev Patel's ass. I was promised hot Dev Patel. That's why I went to go see this movie because he's super fucking hot. Um, I didn't see him naked once. I want my money back. But also he gets a hand job let down. I hate I hate the like punishing hand job trope in movies. The best example of this obviously is is in the master, but like I think there's another punishing hand job in it in Nightmare Alley actually. Um, if Justin Stewart's exceptional reverse shot review is, is any indicator. And admittedly, the story of the Green Knight is somewhat convoluted by modern standards because it was written in the Middle Ages and we have different literary conventions now than we did then. But at the same time, like, you know, there are so many things that were needlessly complicated in that film that didn't need to be. This old woman with a blindfold just sitting there, like this, this like MacGuffin of like an old lady with a blindfold sitting with them oh, right. at the dinner table. Yeah. What was that? that? That had no function other than to make things seem uncanny. It definitely was a movie where... It was gratuitous. Yeah, it, well, it felt like he was dropping these things that as if there was some sense of mystery to them, but it ends up kind of disturbing any, or undermining any attempt to build like a, I won't say coherent vision of time, because I think there is an aspect where this is like a picaresque or, or episodic and... It's going to be one thing and then another thing and then another thing. But yeah, it, there are these like longers in the movie that, I, you know, I kept trying to explain away by the sense that this is in some sense like the, a medieval stoner movie or something like that. Kind of. I mean, it's a piece with a movie, I would say, like a field in England being, you know, not necessarily medieval, but like a historical stoner movie right. directed by a video store auteur that I, people really like because they conflate nonsense with profundity. Well, I think that's a really interesting point because calling it a stoner movie, doesn't that also kind of... It does a disservice to us stoners who actually have <laughs> the capacity for, for you know, great like narrative rigmarole. Right. In fact, rigmarole. That's, that's, that's part of what was your last dual experience. But I mean, I think it also does a disservice to, to the actual imagination required to envision what medieval time was like, what the sense of medieval time was like. What does time look like for medieval people? How did they mark time and how did they perceive time is a very interesting line of thought that I don't know enough about to really expand upon. But I can mm. tell you that for most of recorded Western history, time was very cyclical. So the idea that the film begins and ends, you know, at 
or does he have to go back a year? I think it's a year later, or does he say by a, by six months later or something like that? Mm-hmm. But the idea that the film moves in these cycles, that holidays are in these cycles, and that you have this little there's also these little devices that pop up as a way of conveying that cyclical nature, right? You have that wheel of the seasons that shows us the marking of time. Mm-hmm. This little like aesthetic device and all these things. But then there's also like random shit, like him having a daguerreotype made of him with a camera obscura. Like I understand the desire to to re- reassess the Middle Ages, to bring it into the present in a, in a film and to make the film appealing to contemporary viewers, of course. And in this case, I, I do wonder like, well, if we're just using the Middle Ages or the medieval setting as a way of talking about something larger, where is that something larger in the case of this film? The Last Duel is a movie that doubled down as much as possible on historical verisimilitude. And in so doing made a film that was very, very topical not by accident, right? I think the the less that you try to make something seem hip or cool or topical, mm-hmm. the more sense it can kind of make for us because it gives us something different to weigh our own experience against. Right. The Green Knight looked a lot like a music video. Um, it had that very slick style. It had my least favorite shot in contemporary filmmaking, which is um, a tracking shot of someone from behind. I don't know why every fucking movie has to have a long tracking shot of someone from behind. I don't need to see someone walking somewhere. It, it bores me. Just show me Just show me them when they're there. Yeah, you think that that's part of the magic of cinema, right? In the next scene, if they're somewhere else, I know they got there. It doesn't matter how. <laughs> by, by hoof or foot, it doesn't matter how. But I thought that the film, on an aesthetic level, I thought it was mostly, you know, really powerful. I loved all the costumes. It's got that very slick kind of trinket-based production design I thought was interesting. Everything was really dark. I couldn't tell if that was just the bad projection mm. where I saw it at the theater or if the film was actually shot to look like it was made in a cave. Um, I, I resent this idea that 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 like King Arthur for all of his wealth and power doesn't have candles in every fucking room. Like medieval people, they didn't like live in total darkness by choice. Like if you could afford candles and you were having a lavish Christmas feast, you'd have every fucking room lit up so that people could walk around and see what they were looking at. I mean, it just, so the film does a lot aesthetically and, and structurally to make something very contemporary, or I should say zeitgeisty, not necessarily contemporary, but zeitgeisty. What it does do very well, which I thought was interesting, is casting Dev Patel as the lead. The film casts people of color within medieval society, which is historically accurate. And it it came up in the conversation around this film. It was not the same controversy. There was not like the same controversy around this movie the way there was The Last Duel, but it came up in the way that they talked about this film. The idea of, you know, it doesn't matter like, who who says everybody back then was white. It doesn't matter who you cast. You want the best person for the role. And I completely agree. Um, what I didn't like about Dev Patel's performance is that I don't think he got enough to do. Like, what is that performance? What was I watching him do other than flounder? I wanted to see him do to emote more, to have more, you know, and, and I know that he's supposed to be, you know, kind of a scary cat, like throughout the movie, but like, I didn't get a lot. I didn't get a lot from him because I don't think that the, that they really wanted a lot from him. So it's like, well, then why are you casting Dev Patel? Like, in addition to the fact that he is one of the 10 most attractive people on planet earth, he also is a really great actor. He's, he's definitely underused and under, under directed fundamentally. And underexposed. And I wanted to like this movie. I I haven't. I don't know if I've seen another movie by the director. David Lowery now. Yeah. 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 But I was excited that people were making films about the medieval era. Getting back to the fact that I've been trying to make one for like half a decade almost. You know, I think it's really good that people are are revisiting the medieval era in cinema because it's a 
it's a fascinating time. And period mm-hmm. cinema is always about the era in which the film is made in addition to the era in which the film is set. Right. Yeah. But these films were also like kind of flops at the box office. So I don't know if that bodes well for my own medieval movie, although I'm not also working at the same level that these people are, but where the green Knight fell short for me, like I said, it's just, it didn't feel like a movie to me. It felt uh, like a tone poem. Yeah. And maybe, and maybe people like that. I'm old fashioned. I like, you know, I like movies to have, um, like recognizable, noticeable performances. I want to know that people are acting and that decisions are being made that tell the story in a certain way. And this was just sort of like, it was this kind of picaresque or almost like a, you know, candide type hero's journey of you have to leave the kingdom and undergo Mm -hmm. these trials. But they all just seem sort of like, everybody just seemed really bored the whole time in the movie. Like all this fantastical stuff is happening. And I understand the impulse to show the fantastical as being commonplace because also in the medieval era, people you know, understood science to mean a lot of different things. Mysticism and empirical evidence could exist in conjunction with one another or alongside one another. Mm-hmm. So I, I understand that impulse to kind of like take mystic things or supernatural things off the pedestal and integrate them into the banality of the day to day. Right. But the film still just felt very to- like tonally in terms of the performances and how it was executed. It still felt very kind of like a hum. And I wanted I wanted like a scale. I didn't want a single tone, you know. Yeah, it ends up being kind of neither neither here nor there. I don't know if that's because partly he had some sort of anxiety that he would, you know, I mean, in comparison to Field in England and, and that kind of... Which is also an interest, I mean, another movie that I that I saw and I thought, well, yeah, this is fine, but I guess it's just we- more weird than good, you know. Yeah, yeah, but th- that one, he's, the Ben Wheatley, he's stuck on a note now of just this vague trippiness to his movies that, you know, that you, like you're in a, you're in a perpetual Kubrick zoom when you're watching his movies or something. Which is lazy and boring and uninteresting. I mean, again, despite my best efforts on a political front to be as progressive as, as one can be in our trying times, um, aesthetically speaking, I'm still very much a reactionary. And so, you know, Ridley Scott being 70 fucking years old or 80 fucking years old, father time himself comes out with this amazing film that is a rape revenge story an examination of our current climate around believing sexual assault survivors is also an accurate depiction of 14th century martial combat like the combat in the film is historically accurate and does a phenomenal job too of like making these people in funny hats and costumes feel like real people the dude nails it and then you've got david lowry who is an independent filmmaker who you know comes out of a very actor-driven and human-driven practice of making smaller films for, uh, you know, art house audiences is given, you know, somewhat free reign to make a soaring medieval epic and makes a screensaver. It kind of bummed me out. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's also interesting that once upon a time, Ridley Scott was the young Turk or the young gun. Um, and yes. When, when knighthood was in flower. When knighthood was in flower. Um, but no, I mean, also just a guy who was, you know, sometimes criticized for having a glossy advertising originated approach um, to things. So he, he's not entirely an untainted vision of studio filmmaking. He, he also had something of the, you know, whiff of, of advertising. I mean, he directed the, you know, whatever it is, Chanel ad, you know. That, I've never seen this, but I love Chanel ads. And then Blade Runner. And I mean, we don't have to rehash that, but just notoriously, I mean, you know, I mean, he's. He's done it again in the sense of making something that, you know, is going to takes a while for people to appreciate. Well, I wonder if people are going to come around then and appreciate the Green Knight in time as a as another example. But I, I wanted more of the tangible in this film. 
the experience of medieval art and engaging with medieval art is very tangible mm -hmm. in that, you know, it's about fine fabrics and, you know, carved stone and stained glass and elaborate jewels and beautiful things. And it's, and it's how people understood these things. And the story of the Green Knight, like I said, would have been told to you in someone's like castle or home or wherever the case may be. Right. Um, and, and you would have had the opportunity, I think, to like freely in your mind create whatever visual iteration of this of this story you could conceive of it would look a million different ways to a million different people when they heard it but there was lacking in this film like any kind of like lively storytelling impulse too which is funny because the inciting incident of this movie the thing that moves the whole story forward is storytelling king arthur says at christmas right. i want to hear it's christmas i want to hear tales of battle right and garwin deb patel as garwin gets up and chops the head off of this intruder so that he will have a story to tell, that he will have his own glorious battle to come back from and tell people about. And he doesn't get that. You know, he ends up being a letdown to his family. And this film was a letdown to me in much the same way because I want, I expected greatness from it and greatness is not what I received. Yes. Well, we've had like a strong example and then a weak example of a medieval world building. Um, I'm really curious since you've done so much viewing what is an example, you know, maybe something that people haven't heard of as much of a movie from, I don't know, any time, let's say before 1980, <laughs> that was that for you is a, is a strong example of, of capturing the world. At hmm. that time. Um, let me just look. Some, I got to look this up. Oh, um, well, so Barochik's Blanche, which I mentioned earlier from 1971, is a fantastic film. And it's also about. Wait, sorry. Could you say that again? What? Blanche by Valerian. Oh, OK. Yeah. So um, I was asked by Danny Kasman at Movie Notebook to do like, what's your, you know, end of year, new movie, old movie, dream double feature. And I said The Last Duel and Blanche because both of them are films about a woman who is struggling to maintain her bodily autonomy in a hostile environment um, in the medieval ages, in the Middle Ages. Um, and they're both beautifully done and, and very well executed uh, in terms of the costumes, obviously the sets, but the performances as well. Uh, so Blanche is a really fine example, I think, of a of a medieval movie from another era that completely mm. nails, I think, the the historical accuracy, like aesthetically speaking. And it's always easier in Europe because they just have that shit laying around. You know what I mean? Right. Or your your, your friend has a castle or something. You cannot swing a cat in Europe, in Western Europe somewhere and not hit like a fucking medieval castle that someone's just sitting on. They have so much of that shit laying around. So of course, you know, when you want to make a medieval movie in France, you just like roll up to the nearest castle and like get some stuff and like dress it and whatever. So the film does a really good job aesthetically of, of conveying what I consider to be the most splendid aspects of the era. The story is also great. It's an all-time great performance from Michel Simon, one of his last. So I highly recommend you check it out. I think it's on movie too. I could be wrong. Okay. Um, but there are other ways to find it. I think that film does a splendid job. And then Adventures of Robin Hood. Not to be that guy... Right. You know, I don't think Adventures of Robin Hood is the least bit historically accurate. It's not supposed to be like it's it's what I think the Green Knight could have been, which is to say a film that uses the visual vernacular of the Middle Ages to, to tell a story that we're familiar with, but also insert some kind of new commentary into it. And Ad Adventures of Robin Hood sticks out because I watched it like two days ago. And again, I watched it all the fucking time. But it's such a great movie. Yeah, just it's just great. Oh, good old fashioned Hollywood filmmaking, man. Like. There's swashbuckling, there's a romance, 
it's the world of men who find a purpose and their purpose is to like support Robin as he robs from the rich and gives to the poor. Yeah. He wears uh, really nice form fitting tights. They all wear these tights and everybody's in good shape, <laughs> which I appreciate. The costumes are really beautiful. I actually have, let me look this up, but I have like a YouTube playlist of medieval stuff. Oh, wow. Budget Middle Ages is the name of this playlist and it's all low budget movies that are set in the Middle Ages. Oh, cool. Lancelot Duloc obviously oh, is sure, in there. Yeah gotta be get the crunch of armor in that one yep exactly i think that the two the two modes of medieval filmmaking are this was a disgusting era where everyone was covered in shit or this was an era of like tremendous fantastical splendor sometimes both but um you know blanche is obviously in the latter category i would say hard to be a god even though it's a science fiction film and not from before 1980 is in the former category i mm-hmm. think that passion or not passion of Joan of Arc, but the trial of Joan of Arc, the brazon film uh-huh. is also a, a good example and it does a lot of work too in focusing on like the iconographical aspect of medieval storytelling. A lot of the shots in the film are of her hands or her feet, mm-hmm. of her pose in a certain way. It's a lot of tableau. I mean, it's Brisson, right? So there's a lot of like moments of, um, you know, inveighing against an absent God and, um, and reflection and solitude and, you know, all that stuff that we, that we come to love and expect from his films. Um, yeah. And it does it very well, I think. Um, what else? I'm trying to think of another good example. Oh, color of pomegranates, which is not necessarily medieval, but still close enough. Yeah, and, and also very much the iconographic. Theory. Exactly, and and similarly, shadows of forgotten ancestors too, mm-hmm. um, which is more in the more in the realm of iconographical splendor, unless everyone's covered in shit. Mm-hmm. You know, I personally skew toward the latter category because if I go to a movie, I want to see something that's exciting and beautiful. Uh, I don't want to see a bunch of people covered in shit, but look, sometimes people were, it happens. It happens to the best of us. So I did want to hear about master and commander because I guess it's about 20, 19 years. I mean, doesn't seem that long, but you talked very quickly about it, but is there anything more you, you want to say about that? Well, just that I had an amazing time watching this movie. And mm-hmm. I believe that if it's a film that has been around for a long time and you're just now getting around to it, that, for anyone who watches films, like every movie kind of comes to you at the right time when you're prepared for it. And mm-hmm. I wrote this movie off, like I said, because I was a snobbish young cinephile and I thought it was going to be just a bunch of folder roll. And it's actually a really beautiful film about about how men express affection for one another in the most adverse circumstances. The relationship between Russell Crowe and Paul Bettany's characters, they're like an old married couple. The way that they negotiate, like, yeah. what is the function of this voyage? Can we go back to the Galapagos Islands so I can go shopping for specimens? There's that really beautiful moment with that little boy who has to have his arm taken off because of gangrene. And Russell Crowe brings him a book about Lord Nelson. And you see in the engraving that Lord Nelson only had one arm, you know, and it's and it's very obviously this moment of like, see, huh. you don't worry. Don't feel sad. Like, mm-hmm. you also can still be great, even though you have one arm. Yeah. The way that the, that when someone dies, like there's always like, your, you know, the guy who whose uh, best friend like made like the model of the ship that they're chasing, mm-hmm. you know, and then he has to close up his friend's trunk and he starts crying. I mean, it's it's so beautiful. These men loved each other, but in a way that like people who truly care for one another and have to endure trauma together, yeah. find a way to love one another because it's it's the best weapon they have against their fading morale. Yeah, you know, yeah, and they love the captain too. It's really, I mean, he's crazy. And I keep, I kept thinking that X, Y, or Z thing would happen that there would be a mutiny, that there would be a spy on the ship. No, it kind of like, and the ending doesn't, it doesn't end with them getting that boat. It ends with like, oh shit, I killed the guy that I thought was the captain, but it's not really the captain. We got to go back after that boat. 
I was hoping that there would be like a sequel that they would sail on to another adventure and we'd get like a whole franchise of master and commander movies where like they get into all kinds of colonial Michigas, you know? <laughs> yeah. I, I certainly thought that was going to happen too. I mean, I'm sure there's some, some story has been written about why that didn't happen. I, I, Another I example too of, of the lost art of late studio action filmmaking, because yes, obviously a lot of it was CGI, um, but just as much of it was like real fucking explosions and like, you know, practical arms and mm-hmm. blood and all the costumes. Mm-hmm. They had to, they had to build that set. They had to destroy it and rebuild it again and again and again. They had a real boat. Those, those amazing shots where you see them all painting the side of the boat, yeah. repairing the boat or working above deck. Like that was a real ass boat that they put in the middle of the ocean and that they filmed with a helicopter. Yeah. You know, I mean, they did, they did some incredible things with that movie and it was directed by Peter Weir too, whose work I really like. Yeah, he's he he gets. He's a good utility guy. Um, what's the one? Gallipoli. Yeah, he did Gallipoli. Right he did Picnic at Hanging Rock, which I love. Oh, well, yeah, that's another film about believing women. And also a, a, a trippy film that actually feels like transcendent and mysterious, uh, and not gimmicky. It's extremely trippy. I can I can attest. Yeah, as someone who has tripped. Yeah. <laughs> so well, yeah. I just wanted to make sure we got a little more on on Master and Commander, and I'm glad glad I asked. We could probably bring things in for a landing at that point, but I didn't want to silence you on the topic of one final movie that was was on your list, another new movie. Uh, I don't know if you still feel the need to to say your piece about Nightmare Alley. Which I have not seen, full disclosure. Oh, wait, you haven't seen... I've seen oh. the original. Oh, well, sure. Yeah. I mean, the original. No, I'm not going to see the remake. Are you kidding me? Okay. Absolutely not. That's my vendetta is that I refuse oh, to see this film. Okay. I see. I see what you mean. Okay. I, okay. Why, I, would I, why would I go see that movie? No, it's I a mean, trap. Yes. You're, I think you are absolutely right. Um, and my advice, not that people listen to this for advice or that I like to think of what I'm saying as advice, but I would just say people are better off watching the original again if you've seen it. I just watched it the other day. I love that movie. It's incredible. It's yeah. such a masterpiece. The yeah. first time I saw it, I saw it at Nitrate Picture Show, and it blew me the fuck away. Oh, wow. So when I saw that this movie was being remade by a filmmaker who I have given so many second chances to, and every yeah. time I'm like, why do I do this to myself? Yep. Everybody tells me, like, oh, you will love Guillermo del Toro. He loves old movies, too. That doesn't make you... A, if. If loving old movies is all it took to make you a great filmmaker, I'd be the greatest filmmaker on fucking planet Earth. <laughs> and I'm not yeah. yet, but I plan to be. I'd, Guillermo del Toro gets like so many opportunities to make these movies. And like, why is he, why, who needs the remake of Nightmare Alley? Yeah. That, like, well, who asked for this? That, that's, I mean, this is just, it felt consummate. Why? The, 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 the consummate, like, pet project, you know, I always wanted to do this. I mean, I don't know. I haven't read any interviews because. I also feel like he plays the game so well of presenting and packaging himself in, in the magic way. of movies. I'm just yeah. an old fashioned guy who loves right, the magic right, of movies. Right. Yeah, take it, take a number, buddy. We all do. Get yeah. in line. We all love magic movies. That's why we're. <laughs> that's why we watch them. It's why we risk getting sick to go and see them. I get it, dude. But like, he is just not not hitting for me. I saw Crimson Peak and I was like, what am I watching? This movie is trash. I tried to watch The Shape of Water. I thought this is so maudlin. It's so bad. Like he lacks the cynicism, I think, needed to tackle subject matter like Nightmare Alley. That film is deeply, deeply cynical. It was written by a miserable drunk who killed himself. The novel is phenomenal. The movie stars a bunch of people who, you know, I can't speak to their personal lives, but probably ran the gamut from like deeply cynical 
to, you know, uh, jolly and, and wise. Joan Blondell is in it. And I know that she's a tough cookie. Tyrone Power was a miserable piece of shit, but super hot. You know, <laughs> I mean, if you want to remake Nightmare Alley, if you're going to make a movie like Nightmare Alley, like make it today and make it about like wellness. You know what I mean? Mm. Like the movie is about charlatans and it's about how spectacle tricks people into accepting bullshit and how people will believe what they want to believe mm -hmm. regardless of how good you are at spinning it but if you're good at spinning it and they can meet you halfway they'll believe whatever they want mm -hmm. there is no better time to make a movie about that than right now because that's where we're at people are only believing what they want to believe yeah. more than now more than ever right the time to set the remake of nightmare alley is like today and it's about wellness and the vaccine or whatever the fuck you know what i mean like i don't i don't know why this guy got the chance to make like a prestige period remake of a film that like most people haven't seen. Yeah. I don't know. And, and it was so obviously to your point, a pet project, like imagine being the kind of person who's like absolute acme of their artistic practice is remaking something that they like. Right. Yeah. It, it just doesn't, but on the flip side, I mean, I do have to say that I did like West Side Story, uh, Spielberg's, uh, which I haven't seen yet. Maybe I'll see it. I, don't know. And, I mean, we'll I'm not. See. I'm not saying that it's something that exceeds the original film or as, as, as corrects, uh, you know, problems people had. I know it's film. about Robert Moses, which I appreciate because they don't really get into the Robert Moses stuff in <laughs> no, the original. No, it, the opening of the film starts on, on a dem, on the demolition site and is is disorienting in the, in the most in the greatest way. It's really. Um, some great little camera work, uh, acrobatics, and tr almost trompe-l'oeil kind of feel uh, in, in introducing um, a neighborhood that you think is so familiar to you just from from the original and the imagination of, of the original musical. But I mean, that's just to say that you can return to your whatever your your hero is, and and or whatever your you know fetishized um, a film is, and not botch it, or also not be un unfaithful to it in some way, um, but also not like just kind of slavishly recreate the feel of it or recreate what the feel of it in this kind of collector hobbyist kind of, I'm going to make the perfect version of this, you know, old thing. You, you were saying something, I forget, before we started recording, you, you had a great way of describing what Nightmare Alley is doing. Well, I think Adam Naiman in The Ringer did the best shorthand description of what's being done in this film, which is a gentrified genre. There you go. That's good. Yeah. That's Nightmare Alley for better and more for worse, I would say. Maybe I'll see it on a plane, but like... It seems the place to see it, actually. From the minute I knew that this movie was happening, I was just livid. And then, again, not to be like, it's a trap, but it's a trap. All my favorite actors are in it. Like, they cast <laughs> so many... The cast is so good. Yeah. Like, it's a great ensemble film. It's a great story. I'm just... I don't know. I'm just mad. Like, why did we remake this movie? Yeah. Why are they remaking this movie? Yeah. And, or rather, know. if they're going to remake it, why didn't they hire me? <laughs> That's the real problem. Well, you heard it here first. Thir Thirty years hence, maybe we'll have your remake of the Nightmare Alley or Ten. No, years. I'm I'm going to remake Play Misty for me, but it's going to be about a lady a lady quiet storm DJ. Oh, okay. Well, there we are. Gender swapped Play Misty for me about a lady quiet storm DJ. I like this. I like that also as a place for us to land looking to the future and something to look forward to. Thank you, Carolyn, for taking us through all of recorded time or much of recorded time um, through the movies, especially I liked your budget middle ages. Oh yeah. I'll send you the playlist if you want to put it on to, um, put it on this. 
Substack. The Prince of Foxes with Tyrone Power and Orson Welles in full oh. is on there. Huh. Guru the Mad Monk, the Andy Milligan movie is in there. Wow. Then it's, uh, let's see, some trailers. When Nighthood Was in Flower with Marion Davies from 1922 is in there. There's a lot of fun stuff. Yeah. So yeah. I'll send it to you and you can throw it in the Substack and I encourage everyone to check it out. With due total credit. And uh, I hope we get to talk more about the Middle Ages when we have your entry. Thank you. It's only a matter of time, isn't it? Yes. Signing off. You've been listening to The Last Thing I Saw with your host, Nicholas Rapold. Please consider signing up at rapold.substack.com. Special thanks to the Minarets for the opening music from their song, Montserrat. Thank you for listening. (laughs) 